We are in Ephesians chapter 6 today, starting chapter 6 as we go through uh, Ephesians. And uh, it's an interesting because there's a lot of detail, but we're going to sort of look big picture. And uh, before we get there, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and as always, we desperately need it. We thank you that it's truth, that it's good, that it's authoritative, and that it's very practical and it's profitable to build us up in grace, that you mean to guide us in how we live life and change the way that we relate to each other. But we are often selfish and we're often sinful and we don't obey your word and we don't relate well to others and we rail against being submissive and we don't lead in a loving way. So we need your Holy Spirit to show us wonderful things in your word. Teach us from it. Show us our sin. Show us our Savior. Show us your grace. Enable us by faith to embrace your truth and by it grow us into spiritual maturity so that other people will know we are Christians by how well we love each other. And so pray, by the power of your Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. We ask these things in his name. Amen. Amen. For some reason, when I was starting to work on this message, which is obviously about how relationships are supposed to work, I couldn't help but think of the TV show, The Family Feud. It's supposed to be a trivia show that pits different families against each other and often against members of the same family. And as I thought about that show, I couldn't help thinking about how true it really is. It exalts greed, selfishness, and winning, even if it comes at the expense of family. So I thought about how family feuds have become so common, so common in our society is able to make a game show out of the idea and present it as funny. And it's all very sad that we live in a time and a place where our society makes light of a really, really serious problem. The inability of so many families to simply get along. Years ago, I was listening to a sermon by a guy named Dan Webster, who's a pastor in the Chicago area. I tried to find it again, and I couldn't. I'm sure it's floating around out there somewhere. But he was sharing how one day he and his youth pastor were coming out of a restaurant uh, one night, and they saw a guy across the parking lot of the restaurant beating someone up. And they couldn't see who he was hitting, but from his motions, there was no doubt that he was punching someone. And they ran over to see what was going on. Mind you, the youth pastor was a really big guy, football player size. And they ran up to the scene, and all of a sudden they stopped short because the guy was beating his wife. And then another man ran up, uh, even bigger than the youth pastor, and he threatened to give this guy a dose of his own medicine. And Dan said he didn't know what to do. Some jerk had just pounded his own wife. Some other guy was about to pound him, and Dan didn't think he could stop it. Then all of a sudden, they heard a small voice. And over on the sidewalk, out of sight, stood a small six-year-old boy. And he said, please, mister, don't hurt my daddy. And that cut the tension. And the really big guy put down his fists and just walked away with tears in his eyes. 
And Dan was help, able to help this guy and his wife and his son that night. But they didn't come to church the next Sunday, and he wasn't able to track them down. And uh, so he doesn't know if things really changed. And he said it's easy to write off as just another family feud. But he said after reflecting about it and having tried to get them help, he said he thought, you know, he's really afraid for the six-year-old boy. Because if things don't change, he'll grow up from a frightened six-year-old into a frightening 16-year-old. And then he'll be hard to reach. And as I remembered that story, you know, my first reaction was, that's Chicago. What do you expect? I don't live there. I live here. And I'm sure glad I don't have to deal with that kind of nonsense. But then I remembered another time, another incident, time when I pulled into one of those gas stations slash convenience stores, you know, to fill up and get a soda, and I started walking in the store, and in the parking lot, right in front of the store, there was a man and a woman fighting. And not just arguing, but screaming, slapping, hitting, kicking, using language I can't repeat. And I ran into the store, uh, but they were already on the phone with the police. And I looked back, and I saw the woman jump in a car and just roar off start to finish, about 20 seconds. And as the dust settled, then the man leaned against the building to wait for the police to arrive, and I went to get my drink. The only thing I could think of was I'm sure glad there wasn't a six-year-old boy who had to stand on the sidewalk and watch his parents fight. There are dozens and dozens and dozens of those incidents every day. And some happen right here in Leesburg, Virginia. And I think of those events, and then I look at this text, where the almighty, sovereign God of the universe, who loves us, tells us in his holy, inspired, and authoritative word how people are supposed to relate to each other. And while the Apostle Paul talks about particular roles in this passage, marriage, family, and work relationships, there's a much bigger picture here. And that bigger picture, the overarching truths, control how we function within our roles. And that bigger picture is our common calling. Our common calling. Now, a lot of this is borrowed from David Paulinson, who is a counselor, a director of CCEF, the Christian Counseling Education Foundation. So I'm drawing, so all the good stuff is his, and the rest of it's mine. The, uh, but we're looking at our common calling, and there's three sort of big, overarching, interlocking truths that are supposed to make us wise. And the first is we all have this common calling from God that makes us peers with each other. We all get the same common calling. Second, we have a particular role within our primary relationships where we may be either serving or leading. And third... Most of us wear multiple hats, where sometimes we're called to lead and sometimes we're called to serve, often at the same time. So hold those three truths uh, together, and then we can live our lives with confidence uh, and with grace and to the glory of God. So I want to start with the big picture, our common calling, and then later we'll focus in 
on particular roles. So here in Ephesians, you know, we started the first three chapters with lots of theological uh, teaching, focusing on who we are in Christ. And then we began the practical teaching, starting in Ephesians 4 through the end of the chapter, which is focusing on how are we to live in Christ. But when we made that transition, the first thing we read, Ephesians 4.1, says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. See, each of us has a common calling in all our relationships to walk worthy of our identity as the wife, child, and servant of the Lord. The Lord calls you to please Him by humility, patience, honesty, generosity, and kind-heartedness to others. And this common calling operates irrespective of whatever particular roles you fill. It establishes an attitude of mutual submission. We saw that Ephesians 5.21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And that's to thread through every single relationship we have. Since we're united to Christ, we're also united to each other. That makes us equals as people made in the image of God. Doesn't matter if we're elders or new converts, business tycoons or welfare recipients, a genius or mentally handicapped, four-star generals or buck privates, C-class executives or custodians. Competent adults or helpless infants. Extends even to Democrats and Republicans. Who knew? But we live as peers before him who is no respecter of persons. Differences between us of competence, power, wealth, intelligence, achievement, education, opportunity, sex, age, ethnic background, all vanish. Wyoming and Vermont each get two senators, just like California and New York. And so Ephesians 5, 21 through chapter 6, verse 9, applies to our particular roles. However, all of Ephesians, from chapter 1, verse 1, to the end of chapter 6, applies always to every Christian, in every relationship, because of our common calling in Christ. You've been given God's grace and commanded by the Lord Jesus to give grace to every other person. Whether you're married or single, male or female, child or parent, employee or boss, you live, move, and have your being within a framework of mutual submission. One church, saints together, members of one body, fellow citizens, neighbors, God's household and dwelling, brothers and sisters, all which we've read in Ephesians, all of that to each other. And what we need to learn is that you are a we. It's not written just to a person. Ephesians is written to the church. Most of the time it says you, it's plural. It means all y'all. So believe it or not, you are actually called to be patient and gracious and constructive in every single relationship. Husband and wife, parent and child, master and servant, 
ought to be seeking to understand and encourage each other, repenting of any sins that interfere. No superiority, no double standard, no favoritism. If kids shouldn't backtalk parents, parents shouldn't yell at kids. In our common calling, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. More pointedly, when you think about the core of our identity and being united to Christ, you are first and foremost wife. You are part of the one body of Christ in union with her husband, the Lord Jesus Christ. Whether you're male or female, married or single, you are wife to Jesus Christ. Called to fear Christ and live subject to him. Now, we're not yet the radiant bride adorned in all her glory. The Holy Spirit alludes to the future glory of the church as wife in Ephesians 5.27. It says, so he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. One might well say the glories of the wedding ceremony occur after the rough and tumble give and take of living as husband and wife with Christ. And in Revelation 21, the bride is finally revealed as perfected in all her adornment. Apparently, Christ's wife gets better looking with age, cleansed from every spot and wrinkle, and the wedding celebration comes at the end of the story. Similarly, at the very core of who you are, united to Christ, you are essentially child. Beloved of the Father. We saw that in Ephesians 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. So whether you're a parent or child, you are child to God the Father, called to honor and obey him. Furthermore, you are essentially a servant of the Lord. 1 Peter 2.16, we read that in our responsive reading uh, this morning. Live as people who are free not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. So whether you're an authority or under authority uh, in your workplace, you are a servant to Christ called to obey and fear him. You may be a guy, but you're a wife. You may have kids, but you're a child. You may have people answering to you, but you are a servant. Each of us in that core identity is meant to live as a subordinate to Jesus Christ. We each receive the love, provision, attention, mercy, protection, will, and grace of our husband, father, and Lord. Christ is head, leader, parent, master. He is our superior, and we are his inferiors in the good old-fashioned sense of those words. We are subjects, followers, and dependents. We stand under him. The subordinate relationship with the God who rules over us and cares for us is supposed to control and compel every aspect of our life. So we see that our growth in Christ then has this unique, uh, striking double thrust. First, maturity deepens our submission to Christ. You increasingly learn to serve Christ and to please Him. But second, by this very act, our maturity heightens our likeness to him, so you become increasingly masterful, being remade more and more into the image of Christ whom we serve. So you increasingly picture the essence of sacrificial leadership. It means saying no to being self-absorbed and self-serving, 
saying no to the world, the flesh, and the devil, and say yes to a life-serving God that embodies faith and theological conviction and wise counsel and forgiveness, generosity, patience, self-giving love, all those positive things. So as any Christian submits to Christ's leadership, he or she becomes more of a leader in the best sense of the word. Good subjects and followers become good masters and leaders. So whatever the particulars of your calling as a husband, wife, parent, child, master, servant, they never override your core identity and common calling as wife, child, and servant to the Lord. They never override your common calling. So your calling to walk worthy has a particular role within each of your primary relationships. And the Lord calls you to please him by emphasizing either submission or love within the spheres of those particular relationships. Now that particular role operates within your own circles, with your own husband or wife, your own children or parents, your own boss or workers. And within the various roles that you fill, Christ says, pay particular attention to this. Your roles do not override or cancel out the common calling that makes all of life lived before the Lord. And your life should shine with distinctive beauty because your common calling also does not cancel your particular roles. Look at verses 6, starting at verse 1. We finally get to our text for today, our particular roles. It says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. So to reuse an illustration from a few weeks ago, we could liken this to an orchestra and a choir that assemble that come together for a symphony and praise to God's glory. And the common calling defines uh, the key, the rhythm, the melodic themes, the lyrics to which all the performers and instruments hold in common as they submit to the conductor. But the particular roles define the distinctive parts played uh, performed by each instrument, by each voice, the tone and harmony of flute and violin, of uh, soprano and baritone. So we're moving from the group now more to the individual. And I'm going to take something of a panoramic view here. If you were hoping to get, you know, three keys to being a good dad, not happening today. I want you to think how our common calling has a direct impact on how we live out our particular roles. 
So first, I'm going to start to deal with it one half at a time. Are you a wife, child, and servant of Christ who is also a wife, child, or servant to other human beings? Then you must particularly aim to submit, fear, respect, obey, honor, serve. You do good to your own husband, your own parents, the persons over you in the workplace. And you particularly serve Christ by standing under those that God has placed over you. And Ephesians takes hold of you. If you would obey the Lord, obey your parents. If you would serve the Lord, serve your employer. There are, of course, exceptions. In every situation where you're called to stand under authority, you're still always called to obey God rather than men, Acts 5. Because of our common calling, a wife may need to admonish her husband for his attitude. A daughter may challenge her mother's tone of voice. An employee dispute his boss's unfairness. But in each case, the attitude of serving both God and that person lends credibility and persuasive, uh, persuasiveness simply by making the confrontation far less confrontational. It's much easier to hear correction from somebody who's demonstrated that they love you. And yes, there may be a time to call in the elders or even the police. There may be a time when a wife, child, or employee has to say, I want to follow you, I want to honor you, but in good conscience, I can't do this because it's wrong. And there may be a time to flee for safety. But the particular role never calls you to sin in violation of the common calling to serve Christ. But if we think about it, and you consider the immense quantity of gossip and grumbling and backbiting and sniping and stubbornness and disrespect and nagging and laziness and rolling of eyes, manipulating, rebellion, domineering, that's done by wives, children, and employees. These things are never right. That long list of contentiousness is not excused by someone else's sinfulness. We don't have the privilege of saying they did it first. And such things happen. But even when the husband, parent, or boss is doing something wrong, we're not supposed to pay back evil for evil to anyone, Romans 12, 17. The sin of another never cancels out either the common calling or our particular role. And when godliness has to challenge authority, it is to do it in a godly way. Respecting both the person and the office even while opposing the sin of the person who holds the office. I remember reading about President Harry Truman, and I, I didn't put a footnote in here, but it comes from the book Plain Speaking, about Harry Truman, uh, great biography. He was given a speech one time, and he started being heckled by a high school student. Now that may not sound like a really big deal now, but that didn't happen in the 1950s. And Harry Truman called him out. And he said, you may not like me, I don't care. But you will respect the office of the President of the United States. And that kid was silenced. Now there may be some current application of that. I don't know. Perhaps. 
But what most people don't know is that Harry Truman knew getting publicly rebuked by the president, that could be pretty tough for a 17-year-old. And so he called him, and he encouraged him, and he helped him get into college, and he followed his progress. And Harry Truman, president of the United States, became that kid's biggest supporter. And that kid went on and did very well. So we see some people hold the office and can act in accordance with their common calling. Christ calls some people to develop particular intentions and actions that build people up. But let's look at the other side. A wife, child, and servant of Christ, who is also a husband, father, or master, should aim to love, provide, care for, do all the things that I said that Christ does for us. Nourish, cherish, value, uh, bring mercy, give grace, build up, teach, treat fairly. If you're in those roles, you are called to do good to your own wife, your own children, and the persons under you in the workplace. You act as an image bearer of Christ by looking out for the well-being of those that God has placed within your care. And leaders are to model themselves on Christ's way of leading. We already read twice in Ephesians 5, Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. I think it's striking that our common calling tells each of us to follow his example in pursuing a gracious and redemptive agenda in every single relationship. By implication, such concern for those in your care is also pressed in upon parents and upon supervisors. And Ephesians takes hold of you. If Christ loves you, love your wife. If the Father nourishes you, nourish your children. If your employer does you good, do good to those uh, who serve you. Christ makes a devastating indictment of a lot of other leaders who don't do this, where people emphasize their own authority and demand submission of those under them. You know, if, if you're the one that has to say all the time, I'm in charge, you're probably not. And we have Christ as our, not only living out what this should look like, he gives us a dramatic alternative, Mark chapter 10. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. He served our best interest. But he didn't serve our will, just as he didn't come to indulge himself. We who are so well served by Christ learn to serve his will. Where we're called to lead others, we do so following his pattern. Husbands, parents, managers, repent from serving your own will and repent from serving another's will so you can serve other people by serving God's will. Paul is only reiterating what Jesus himself has taught. Earlier in Mark 10, a few verses before that, it says, those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not so among you. For whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, 
And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be servant of all. So we are to look out for those that God has placed under you. The rule of love, rightly understood, rightly lived, makes beauty, freedom, joy, the glory of God shine forth. Husband, pursue your wife's well-being. Parents, give yourself to nurturing your children. Bosses, pour energy into being fair and doing good to those who work for you. Now, there are, of course, rights. In every situation where you're called to look out for another's welfare, you must always lead. You can't let your own desires rule, but you also can't reverse roles where you let the desires of child and employee rule. There's a time to make a decision that will be unpopular and to insist that everybody follows it. There's a time to call someone on the carpet, to put an employee on probation, to discipline a child. There's a time when a parent or boss has to say, I love you and I want your best, but this is what we're going to do, even if you don't like it. This is a family vacation. You're going to have fun whether you like it or not. I may or may not have said that at some point in my life. But there's a time to take charge and actually exercise authority. Now, the particular role of being kind and considering the situation of another doesn't allow you to sin by shirking the responsibilities of leadership. If God has put you in a leader role, whether it's at home or at work or some other sphere in your life, this leads me to believe that if you refuse to exercise that leadership, you are not following Christ. The sins of others never justify ducking our particular role in pursuing their well-being or forgetting our common calling. Now, from the employer or leader side, consider the immense quantity of hostility, laziness, violence, uh, self-serving, neglect, ingratitude, favoritism, domineering control that are done by some husbands, some parents, and some bosses. And again, those things are never right. A long list of self-serving tyranny is not excused by someone else's sinfulness. And such things happen, but even if a wife, child, or employee is doing something wrong, once again, we're not supposed to pay back evil for evil for anyone. Romans 12, 17. That's how some of these principles are the same on both sides of the equation. When godliness has to challenge another's wrong, it does so in a godly way, communicating the grace of God both in word and in our attitudes to respect the person and the obligations of gracious redemptive authority even while opposing the particular sin of that particular person who's in that position of authority. So the reality is, most of you inhabit multiple roles. Therefore, most of you will hear yourself addressed by Ephesians multiple times from multiple perspectives. Our common calling addresses every one of us. But we each have sort of a unique arrangement for our particular roles. God places each person in a unique situation, your own relationships. 
And as many as five or six of the six particular roles might come with your name attached to them. If your parents are alive and you're married with children and you answer to a supervisor and have others answer to you in the workplace, then you're both boss and worker, both parent and child, and either husband or wife. Now there's a few people, for example, a retired single person with no living children or parents who are only addressed by our common calling. It's actually pretty rare. Of course, the general principles that drive this passage still apply. They're still wife, child, and servant of Christ. And such people still have plenty to occupy them because the whole rest of the book of Ephesians is to work into their heart and work out in their life. Now sometimes single adults, lots of singles here today, wonder, why does Paul leave me out? You know, he's talking about married people. Of course, unmarried people are not left out by the Apostle Paul, a single adult, who was sent out by another single adult, Jesus. And so if you're single, you're directly addressed by the common calling to be faithful to this uh, relationship between Jesus and his body. But much of the passage still applies. You are a wife. Although you may not have a particular role as a husband or wife, the truths and exhortations will enrich your common calling. You are a child. If you have living parents, you're addressed by verses 1 through 3. If you're a single parent, verse 4 has your name on it. And you are a servant. If you're an employee, you're addressed by verses 5 through 8 regarding your supervisor. If you're the boss or have any uh, leadership or managerial responsibilities, verse 9 has your name on it. The net effect is we're all called to major on submission in some relationships and initiating love in other relationships. Finally, I should never say finally, um, notice your particular roles usually change over time. Leaving one's parents to cleave to one's spouse changes the form of honor shown to parents. The death of a spouse or parents cancels obligations of submission, but not honor. Abandonment by a spouse or the marriage of a child alters the obligations of loving provision and guidance. When a wife becomes a mother, she gains a new role. If a single woman gets involved in helping with the youth ministry, that's a plug. If a single woman gets involved helping with the youth ministry, she gains two new obligations, to love and lead the teenage girls with whom she meets, but also to submit and learn from the youth pastor and the elders who set policy for the youth ministry. Responsibilities also change as... Uh, circumstances change as, as time passes. You treat your college-aged children different than you treat your elementary school-aged children. I hope. You're still a parent in both cases, but it's a different kind of nurture that develops. In a similar way, a young man expresses honor to his parents with less obedience than when he was a child but with more obedience than when he moves out and gets married and has his own home. His parents no longer tell him when to take a shower. But he still lives under the rules of the house rather than his own. 
And sometimes roles don't change. If one of your children is mentally handicapped, you're going to exert a great deal of control over their life as long as you both are still living. And on the other hand, sometimes roles completely reverse. Using my own example, if your aging father suffers from dementia, you have to take charge of his affairs, making decisions for the parent who nurtured you, who set your curfew, who taught you how to be a father. The call to honor your parents remains, although in much of the everyday business of life, you're now the loving authority. Finally, we get to the last verse, verse 9. It's really important to understand all of this because it tells us that there is no partiality with him. King James Version says he is no respecter of persons. And that's important because we tend to be partial and we tend to respect some people more than others. We tend to you know, show favoritism and say things like, you're my favorite. Some people favor persons in authority. They give uh, superiority, husbands, parents, bosses, governors, pastors. And they may look down on the little people. And they see sins of rebellion far more clearly uh, than they see sins of domineering control. Other people tend to favor those of folks that are in traditionally subordinate roles. And they tend to despise the authority of husbands, parents, bosses, governors, and yes, even pastors. And they're soured towards the big people. And they see sins of domineering control far more clearly than they see sins of rebellion and self-will. But God sees them all. God shows no favorites. He doesn't tip the scales to the great who must love well or the small who must serve well. And it's very interesting. We have a parallel passage here in Colossians. In Ephesians and Colossians, very common. But in Ephesians uh, 6, verse 9, Paul is speaking to masters. He says, knowing that he is both their master and yours is in heaven, there is no partiality with him. But in Colossians 3.25, he's speaking to servants. And he says, it is the Lord Christ whom you serve, for he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and there is no partiality. God does not play favorites. And we can't think that we can drift or wriggle out of or run away from his revealed will for you. You can't even cry about it. He can, but you can't. And Ephesians gives us the wisdom to find our way amidst all of these variables. The fact that you may have five particular roles. You may have one. You may have three. You may have none. How does all this apply? How does the common calling lead me to, as Ephesians told us, what's pleasing to the Lord? And we learn in all goodness and righteousness and truth God's pattern for relationships is immensely consistent across all of those roles. So I said at the beginning there was three truths you had to learn. We almost obey our common calling to treat each other with redemptive love. 
saturates every single relationship that we have. You treat everyone the same. Second, we all follow Christ in how we carry out our particular roles. Every person in a subordinate role has to focus on standing under those placed over him or her. And every person in an authority role has to focus on looking out for the welfare of those who are placed under him or her. And so in that case, we treat people differently, either serving or leading. And third, life is so arranged for most of, uh, of us that we have to submit to Christ by standing under some people and submit to Christ by looking after other people. So how do we do this? All this is laid out and says, here's, here's what you do. How do we do it? And ultimately, I think we can only do it by looking to Jesus because he's our ultimate role model. You think about it, until you see that Jesus Christ was the true son who lost the love of his heavenly father so our sins could be forgiven and we could be brought into his family, until you see that Jesus was the true son who lost the love of his father so we could have God as our heavenly father, until you know our heavenly father and you know how he loved you and how that came at such cost, and that only then will God's love fill your soul. And only then will you have the security to not over-control your child or under-control your child. Not to want your parents' approval too much or not to be too bitter that you didn't get all that you wanted. Because we have God's love. We have God's approval. We have God's acceptance. And how do we know? Because the ultimate son lost the love of the ultimate father so we could have the love of the ultimate father so that we could then love our children and our parents rightly. Same thing for work relationships. Jesus is the one true master. He was the Lord who became a servant. Why? So we could be saved. So we could have our sins forgiven. He becomes the one non-oppressive, sacrificially leading always loving, ultimate master there is. And if you're working today for your own self-esteem or for approval or for power or for status or for control and not for God because you want to feel good about yourself, you're being a poor servant. And ultimately your work will drive you into the ground because you'll never be able to meet that standard and that expectation and you'll be unhappy and frustrated. Now, you still may be driven, but if you know who you are in Christ, then you work not because you're trying to feel good about yourself and not because you're trying to gain control or approval, but your work becomes a way of serving God and serving the people around you. And you actually become a liberated servant. Only when you see the ultimate master who became a servant can you who are servants live your life in the workplace serving and leading others as a way of serving your Heavenly Father? Only when you see the ultimate Son who lost His Heavenly Father's love so that we who should be orphans have become the beloved children of God, now and only now can we live our lives and our family serving and leading our parents and children. Christ is our ultimate role model. He shows us how to live out our common calling. And that changes everything.
Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us once again by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and see our Savior. Teach us the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. Enable us to see and know and believe this basic Christianity, that we're to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, because Jesus loved us and showed us how to do that. Thank you for a panoramic view of this passage in which we see how much is involved in living the Christian life. How great it would be if we learned how to relate well to each other and that we model Christ in all of our particular roles. Lord, we long for that kind of life. We ask that you would make it a reality in each of our lives. We ask this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Hear God's blessing from the book of Colossians. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And for the 746th time, God bless you. I'll see you next week.